Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Daily Churn. Today we are going to be talking about parking cash. And it's one of those topics that it's not the, the sexiest topic, but it is a pretty useful one to have a good grasp on because we all have cash sitting around for different reasons, whether that's trying to get bonuses at different bank accounts, you need a bunch of sitting cash often to qualify, or it's for a down payment on a house or tax payments that you're saving for if you're an independent contractor and you pay those out quarterly. These kind of topics come up with my friends quite a bit. And there's always a question as to where to put your money for the best return. And as with all things churning related, that's a constantly moving target, especially now with inflation and some of the recent news around one of the quote unquote stable coins. But yeah, I figured I would kind of cover some of the places that I currently park cash or have explored parking cash at. And it's a combination of banks and stable coins and treasury bonds. And we'll touch a little bit on crypto and stocks as well. But those I think are more investment related. And I do want to keep this more focused on just what to do with sitting cash that you have so that you're not losing value just through inflation. And so I'm thinking I'll probably just go through the list from least risky to most risky and maybe at the end run through a couple of scenarios of if you have 10K, where would it make sense to put it versus if you have 100K, where would you put that and, and kind of run through how I go about doing it and where I have our sitting cash parked because we do have a good chunk in cash due to the nature of doing the FIRE, financial independence, retire early thing. And that's a, a whole nother topic for another day. But let's get started with just banks. So on the bank side of things, it's really just an equation of how much risk and how much effort and how much reward you're trying to reap. I guess that applies to, to all of these accounts that I'm going to go through. Um, but banks is on the far end where it is the least risk. And the reward sort of varies based on how much effort you're willing to put in. So on the lower side of the reward scale, I think SoFi is probably one of the easiest banks to use and earn. I think it's now 1% interest on the money you have at SoFi. And so again, 1% is very low given the current interest environment. But at the same time, it is extremely easy to use SoFi. There's no requirements you have to meet in order to qualify for the 1%. So it can be a good option if you just need a place to hold cash on the interim while you're transferring money between other accounts to qualify for other bonuses. Like we all need a solid intermediary bank account that is really good at scheduling transfers in and out. And so far it's pretty decent. I personally use Ally for that. I've tried using Capital One 360 and that also I think is at around 1% interest now, but it's a lot harder to manage a lot of transfers on the Capital One portal. Whereas on Ally, it's really easy to queue up a whole bunch of transfers and make them recurring and automated and then have money go in and come right out a couple days later. It's really easy to set all of that up. And the nice part with Ally too is that a lot of the banks that you end up adding end up qualifying for their instant or next day direct deposit transfers. So whereas most banks, for example, like Wells Fargo, it always takes three to five days for money to arrive. And I think you can pay Wells Fargo an extra fee if you want it to be a next day ACH. Ally does all of that automatically for free. The downside with Ally though is they don't really have like a real played integration. So often you do have to do trial deposits. Whereas I think SoFi 
does have a better played integration. So pros and cons, you can kind of assess which one you like better, but it's good to have an account that is sort of foundational to your churning activities and that earns not 0%, but even just getting 1% is good because if you're trying to qualify for bonuses that often require 5, 10, 15, 20, $30,000 to transfer in, that money may as well earn something while you're moving it around. But SoFi, very low end in terms of reward, but also very, very risk-free because of course all bank accounts are FDIC insured so that if SoFi went out of business, the federal government is still insuring your deposits and so you will get that money back. But you can do a lot better in terms of interests. And for the longest time, I was using H.M. Bradley. In fact, the first episode of this podcast is about H.M. Bradley because they were offering 3% on up to $100,000 of money that you have deposited with them. However, things have really taken a turn for the worse with H.M. Bradley in terms of just how much effort is required in order to qualify for that 3%. They've progressively made it harder and harder, and now it's basically a requirement that you have their credit card plus do a bunch of activities in order to qualify. And it's gotten so convoluted that a few months ago I was trying to qualify and I'd opened their credit card and I thought I'd met all the requirements in order to qualify for 3% the next quarter. And it turns out I didn't. Like it gotten so complicated that even though I churn hundreds of accounts a year, I messed up the H.M. Bradley requirements. And that's when I just decided to leave and start really exploring other places to park cash. And so if you are very detail oriented and you don't mind doing a lot of tracking and are okay with requirements like putting in $1,500 of direct deposit each month from a real employer, spending money on that credit card, and of course, opening that credit card in the first place, Haitian Bradley could still be a decent option at 3%. It's just that, you know, the trend has been that they're making it harder and harder. And that is all by design because what happened with HM Bradley was that they realized that too many people signed up at 3%. Like they're sponsoring bank because they're, a, they're essentially an app, a fintech company that is backed by a real bank. And their agreement with the real bank was for, you know, X million dollars worth of deposits. They greatly exceeded that because their account was so popular and, you know, rightly so, it was at 3% when no one else was offering 3%. And so their backing bank was basically like, you need to stop taking in new deposits. This isn't what we agreed to. This isn't what we underwrote to you for. And so H&M Bradley is literally trying to lose customers so that they can reduce the amount of deposits they have at their backing bank because they're not authorized to have that much deposit. And so they went into like waitlist mode. They've been changing requirements so that essentially only the most dedicated H&M Bradley customers who are willing to do all of these things are the ones that stick around and churners like us are going to drop off. And, you know, that's what they wanted and that is what's happening. So H&M Bradley's requirements, I think, are only going to get worse over time. And in an environment now where interest rates are rising, I don't think 3% is going to be that special anymore. And it already sort of isn't. So the other bank that I use more frequently now is Current Bank. It's also an app bank, but they offer 4%, but only up to 6K. And so between my P2 and myself, we have $12,000 with Current earning 4% interest. And so obviously, if you had $100,000 at H&M Bradley, $12,000 is not going to be enough to cover you moving $100,000 out of H&M Bradley. And so what we opted to do was to spread our H&M Bradley funds in between a bunch of different accounts. 
And so one of those is Current. I like Current because it is very easy to use. They've got a pretty nice app. And for a while, the 4% interest was only available to premium members, but now they've made it available to everyone. So you can just sign up and there's like a sign up bonus still, I think, for joining Current. So even though the return is pretty low, given that there is that 6K cap, the fact that the money is totally liquid and there's really zero risk because it is also FDIC insured, I like Current to just store money that you may need in the immediate future. But if you know you don't need the money for the next year or so, but still want the option to be able to get the money if you did need it, I think I-bonds through the treasury really is the best option for that right now because it does earn 9% interest and you are allowed to withdraw it early. So while it is not as liquid as money in Current or SoFi or Ally, it is still accessible if you do need it. And during that time while you don't need it, it's earning much more interest than anywhere else. And so I think that's part of why I-bonds have become so popular. But as you guys probably know, I-bonds have that $10,000 a year limit on how much you can buy for yourself. Your spouse can also buy 10,000. You can also buy 10,000 for your children. You can also gift I-bonds. Like if you wanna lock in that 9% rate now, you can buy it as a gift and it is stored in this little tab called your gift box on the treasury website. And so it's earning that interest. But the thing to note with gifting is that whoever you're gifting to is still under that $10,000 annual limit. So if you bought $10,000 of I-bonds this year, your wife can't gift you $10,000 this year because you've already hit that cap. She can gift it to you next year. And so the benefit of gifting really is that she can buy it this year and it locks in this year's interest rates. And next year she can gift it to you. So if you feel like 2023 interest rates are going to be back at 2%, it makes sense to buy next year's treasury bonds now as gifts that will sit in your account until you're ready to gift them. But at the end of the day, it is still a less liquid place to park your cash than a regular bank account. But it does offer the same kind of security. So bank accounts have FDIC insurance, treasury bonds, in this case, I bonds are issued by the treasury. And so the only scenario in which you would lose your money is if the US treasury and the economy and thus probably the entire country went down in flames. And so while that could happen, it's quite unlikely. And if it were to happen, that would be, you know, a global collapse on a scale of which none of us have ever seen before. And so I think, you know, betting on the stability of that is, is a pretty safe bet. And so I-bonds is a pretty good place to park your cash, assuming you don't need it in the super short term. Like if you need it three months from now and the penalty is three months of interest, there's really no point investing in I-bonds. And there are some effort related challenges in terms of getting approved. Many people have to go into a bank and get a medallion stamp done by a certified banker and then mail that form in and then wait for the treasury to approve it, which takes two to three weeks. And the website is just one of the most ancient websites you've probably have used in recent memory. Like in order to put your password in, you have to click through with your mouse, a virtual keyboard that shows up on the screen. And so if you use like a password keeper, like Bitwarden or LastPass or OnePass, any of these where they generate a 16 digit randomized string, you will have to manually enter that using your mouse each time you log in. So the whole process is quite antiquated, but you are getting 9%. 
And so if you don't need to touch the money and you only need to visit the website once or twice a year to purchase your I-bonds, it's not that big of a deal. So yeah, not a bad option, but depending on how much cash you're trying to park, you're going to run into issues with the I-bond annual limit. And so that's how I really started looking into stablecoins. So yeah, let's switch gears and talk about stablecoins and how those work and some of the recent things that have happened, especially with Luna and Terra. So the quick and dirty on stablecoins is that they're essentially crypto that's pegged to the US dollar, but the way they're pegged can vary. And what that means is that the risk profile for different flavors of stablecoins are going to be vastly different. So none of these are FDIC insured. So you're automatically going to be in a riskier category than banks. But we're definitely not into the risk profile of, let's say, Bitcoin or any of the other crypto coins that are more like investments, like stocks, than they are like stable assets. I think it's closer to the side of the banks than it is towards investments. And so similar to banks, the interest rates that get paid on stablecoins changes the same way that banks change their interest rates. And the way these companies make money in order to pay you that interest rate is also very similar to banks. They essentially lend out your money to other borrowers at a higher interest rate. And so they make that difference between how much they're getting paid in interest and how much they're then paying you in interest. And so if you've looked into potentially holding money in a stable coin and earning interest on a platform that offers interest, you've probably come across the term staking. And staking actually technically is something a little different than how it's now colloquially used. Originally, it referred to a very specific technical thing you can do on the blockchain with your coins and your contracts. Nowadays, staking is sort of just like how you would think of uh, a bank to function. Essentially means you stake the platform money and then they go ahead and use that money to lend out to other people similar to a bank. These days, when you see the word staking, that is essentially what most people are referring to. And so by staking your money with a certain platform, they'll give you interest as a reward so that they can then use your money or your coins to make more money. And so the primary risk of having your money held or staked at one of these crypto brokerages or exchanges that's offering interest is if that brokerage goes out of business, it goes under. That's the platform risk, the risk of the platform going bankrupt. And so in that sense, it is very similar to stocks, where when you invest in a stock, there is a risk that the business you invest in goes out of business. And some of these exchanges are publicly traded, so it is very similar in that regard. But unlike stocks, when you put the money in a stable coin, there is zero volatility, or at least on paper. And so that's where it's important to sort of differentiate between stablecoins that are actually backed by US dollar reserves versus stablecoins like Terra, UST, that are algorithmically pegged to the US dollar. Without getting too deep on the Luna Terra thing, which has been all over the news lately, essentially UST, the Terra coin, which is supposed to be pegged to the US dollar, collapsed along with Luna, which is its sister coin. And the way those two functioned together was that there was a complex algorithm that would burn and create Luna in order to keep the TerraCoin stable at $1. But someone, whether it was a hack or a planned manipulation, 
cashed out, I think, $2 billion of Terra. And the algorithm wasn't able to compensate for such a big outflow. And then it caused a panic and then more people cashed out Terra. And so that's where it nosedived. And Luna, the sister coin that sort of backs Terra and makes this algorithm possible, nosedived, I think, from over $100 down to like a cent. And Terra went from being worth $1 US dollar to, I think, 20 cents. Now it's maybe like 40 cents on the dollar. And so the whole thing was a disaster. But at the same time, this really was an algorithm problem. They designed the algorithm so that they didn't have to keep $1 in reserves for every UST that they created. And so instead, they only kept, I think, a billion or two billion in Bitcoin as a reserve, which they're now going to use to try and stabilize the Terra coin. So, I mean, I guess the TLDR for me is that I would never put money in UST in the first place. But I understand why people did, because they were offering 20% interest to hold UST. And since UST was marketed as a stable coin, where it should match the US dollar, it created this illusion of safety and stability and lower risk. When in fact, the truth of it is, it was just as risky holding UST as it was holding other crypto like Bitcoin, because it is so tied to Luna, which is a regularly traded coin that fluctuates. So all of that to say, it is really important which stable coins to pick versus thinking of stable coins as a singular thing. Specifically for me, in terms of just mitigating that coin risk, I only pick coins that are backed one-to-one by US dollar reserves. And so in this case, USD coin is one of those. I think that one was created by Circle and they are very transparent about their reserves and they do work with an accounting firm to review those reserves. Then there's also GUSD, which is the Gemini coin, which is also backed one-to-one by US dollar reserves and is also reviewed by an accounting firm. Another pretty popular one is Tether. I don't personally hold Tether because Tether is currently under some scrutiny or controversy with uh, it's either the SEC or the DOJ or something about misrepresenting the fact that they truly do have a one-to-one in their reserves, whereas USD coin and GUSD has not had that kind of a potential scandal yet. And, you know, if they ever were to have that kind of a thing come to light, that's when I would switch and move to a different coin that didn't have this kind of an issue. But yeah, in the case of UST and Luna, there were never any promises from the beginning. You know, by design, this was an algorithmic stablecoin and they did not want to be tied to having US dollar reserves. They wanted to be totally decentralized. And unfortunately, it did not work out for them. But in terms of, you know, parking cash and finding stable places to park cash, that should be one of your criteria when reviewing stable coins is do they have USD reserves? Are they being transparent about it? Has there been news or investigations uh, saying that they don't actually have what they're saying they have? And of course, these remaining stable coins could be lying and they could still be fabricating their records for these accounting firms, but the risk is just a lot lower. So essentially with stable coins, the two risk factors to keep in mind is the coin risk, the risk of essentially the coin itself going under, and then the company risk. 
And so when you think about company risk, I mean, I think the biggest company or at least the most well-known one in the US right now is Coinbase. They're publicly traded. They would be an option I'd consider if it wasn't for the fact they don't offer that high of an interest. I think it's only around 5%, but I would feel pretty secure holding stable coins at Coinbase because it's a publicly traded company. Their financial records are public. You've also got Voyager, which is also a publicly traded exchange. There's Gemini run by the Winklevoss twins. And so it's important to sort of figure out your own appetite for risk and then try as best as you can assess the potential risk of some of these companies. And, you know, on our end, our whole thing is really diversification. We don't go full into stablecoins, like not all of our cash is in stablecoins. And the cash that is in stablecoins, we assess each coin and each company and then diversify because not all companies and not all coins are created equal. And so we have some criteria like, hey, is it one to one reserves? Has the company been around a long time? Is it publicly traded? All that stuff. And use that to determine how to allocate cash amongst these various stable coins and crypto brokerages. And so ultimately, the three that I'm most confident in are FTX, Voyager, and Gemini. But even then, I'm not like 100% confident in any one of them to have all of my money with just one of them and only have it with one of the coins. So spreading it out between the different coins they offer and between those exchanges is sort of how we're minimizing some of that risk. If one of these coins or one of the brokerages went belly up, you don't lose all of the money that you put in. So with FTX, they're offering 7.9% on up to $10,000 that you hold with them in cash and then 5% for money deposited after. So there's no coin risk because you're not actually putting it into a coin. There is platform risk though. And so platform risk is very real, but at least it's one less risk to worry about. And so that's why I think I'm drawn to FTX. They were one of the big pioneers of the whole crypto exchange brokerage things, and they've made a lot of money and are very well funded. And, you know, I personally have kind of a soft spot for their founder who sort of believes in essentially giving away like, I think 99% of the money he's made and he's made tens of billions of dollars. The downside with FTX, though, is that since it is capped at $10,000, there's a limit to how much you're going to make. So it is a nice way to diversify. But unlike banks, the money you deposit with them is not FDIC insured. Another annoying thing with FTX is they only allow a $2,000 deposit into your account every 10 days. After a while, they'll up it to $5,000 every 10 days. So my account is at $5,000 now. I think part of the reason why the deposit limit is so low is because they're not officially incorporated in the US. They're just breaking into the US market now. However, this doesn't impact withdrawing money out. I don't believe there's a limit on how much money you can withdraw. You do just have to wait 30 days after your deposit arrives before you're eligible to withdraw it out. So that does present a 30-day period where the money is not liquid. So if you do need the money within that 30-day time frame, it's probably not the best choice. But if you're able to hold it over 30 days, I think it's one of the best returns you can get on straight fiat currency without having to move it into a coin. And you know, while on the back end, FTX is doing things with your money, they could be buying other coins, they could be lending it out, all that stuff you're not directly exposed to coin risk. The only way you would lose the money is if FTX itself went under, 
which is possible, but that's where it's really important to kind of figure out your own comfort level with risk and your own assessments of the company and, and whether you think they'll be around during the amount of time where you have money parked with them. Another place where we're parking cash and diversifying our stablecoins is with Voyager. So Voyager offers 9% interest on USD coin up to $25,000. So pretty high cap. And anything over $25,000 to $100,000 is 7.25%. So still really good. Then anything over $100,000 is 6.5%. So still like double the returns from H&M Bradley. They also offer a loyalty program where if you hold their own coin, I think it's VGX, you get a boost of like 1.5% if you hold 20,000 VGX, which is about $16,000. You know, just to be totally clear, you should not do that unless you actually wanted to invest in the VGX crypto. Because while getting an extra 1.5% return is great, you are really just at that point gambling on Voyager's coin to perform. And it has not performed that well. I guess most cryptocurrencies are sort of down right now along with the market, but we'll touch on that in a little bit. In terms of just holding USD coin though at Voyager, I feel pretty good about it. I think it's a fairly low risk investment. USD coin, as I mentioned earlier, is backed by US dollar reserves. So what happened with Luna and Terra should in theory not happen unless there was a scandal with USDC which could happen, but the calculation I'm making for myself is that it's probably pretty unlikely. Then Voyager as a company is publicly traded, which is a good thing because there's more scrutiny and more eyes on their financial records. They've got over 100,000 five-star reviews on the Apple App Store, which is a good thing only in the sense that, you know, you don't want to put your money with the platform that barely has any reviews. For example, Nexo recently was on Doctor of Credit because they're offering a bonus. They only have 854 reviews on the App Store and it's only three and a half or four and a half stars. So it's more if they only have a few reviews, then I think it'd be cause to worry, hey, is this platform legit? Has it been around for a while or is it just kind of a fly by night operation that's going to be gone tomorrow? You know, and that's sort of one of the key things to assess when you're determining platform risk is stability and length of time they've been in operation. I'm probably going to do that Nexo bonus thing, but only because you only need to hold your money there, I think, for like 30 days. And so I think the chances of Nexo going bankrupt in the 30 days where I transfer my $1,000 in is probably pretty low. And if it did happen in those 30 days, losing $1,000 wouldn't be the most devastating thing in the world to me, but it could happen. And so that's sort of the risk with some of these smaller ones. Voyager doesn't have that problem because it has been around for a long time and there's a lot of positive reviews and a lot of people using it. So at least you know that they're like a real company and they're publicly traded. So for me, Voyager kind of falls into a low risk bucket. It's not zero risk like banks, but it's low risk compared to some other things like stocks or other cryptocurrencies. And the return is pretty high because their cap is pretty high. And the money is pretty liquid. It's really easy to deposit and pretty quick to withdraw the money out. Like selling your USD coin is instant. Depositing is instant. So they essentially spot you however much you're going to deposit while your transfer actually moves over. Then withdrawing takes at most a week. Finally, we have Gemini, which is the exchange that creates the Gemini coin, GUSD, which is also pegged to the US dollar and has a one-to-one -one reserve backing. 
And it's the one that's super well funded by the Winklevoss twins. And their whole thing is transparency and scrutiny. So they're not publicly traded, but one of their like core tenets, I guess, is they want to bring transparency to the crypto stablecoin world. And so are very upfront with their financial records and they have accounting firms that review this stuff. And in terms of like just how well established they are, they've got 88,000 reviews on the App Store. So they're not one of these new exchanges that only have like a handful of reviews. They've been around for a while. So similar to Voyager, I kind of put them in that lower risk category. And the return, since they only offer a 6.9%, is not as good as Voyager, but they have no caps. It's 6.9% of however much GUSD that you're holding. And the app is nice to use. It's very liquid, easy to get money in and out of, easy to buy and sell GUSD. And so for us, it's just another good place to diversify across platforms. And in this case, also coins, because now we're not just in USD coin, we're also in GUSD. So those are the three main ones, FTX, Voyager, and Gemini, holding fiat currency, USD coin, and GUSD. Those are the main three that we're using to kind of diversify our stable coins. I'm, I'm sure there's other ones and other good platforms that I, I don't know about. You know, I'm, I'm still fairly new and learning about the whole crypto thing. So if you have suggestions or if I misstated any of these things, definitely, you know, let me know and leave a comment either on Reddit or on the dailychurnpodcast.com. And uh, yeah, maybe there could be a part two to this in the future. But lastly, I kind of wanted just to touch on just actual crypto and stocks and why I'm not going to dive into them in this parking cash episode, because I think of both crypto and stocks as just investments. And those are inherently risky and are a bad place to park cash that you need soon. If you're in it for the long term, I think stocks are the best place to put your cash if you don't need to access it for the next 10, 20, 30 years. Crypto, on the other hand, is definitely more of a, a gambler investment. And I personally don't hold any crypto other than what I have in stable coins. And again, you know, crypto stable coins, they all get bucketed into the same umbrella sometimes. And I think I just want to clarify that, yeah, I don't hold any Bitcoin or Dogecoin or Shiba Inu or any of these other ones. And the main reason really is because I was considering it back in 2020 when the pandemic hit and Bitcoin prices plummeted down to five, six thousand $6,000, I think even $4,000 at one point. And while it was appealing to buy it at that price, the thing I noticed was that the price of various cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin really just mirrors the stock market, but on a more exaggerated scale. Like when stocks are up, cryptos up tenfold over stocks. When stocks are down, crypto's down tenfold over stocks. So right now, stocks have a dip of, I think we're down maybe 10, 15, even 20% since the beginning of the year. Crypto's down anywhere from like 30% to 100%, you know? And so one of the things that I was trying to do back then was diversify. We're preparing for fire. And an important aspect of that is having money in cash and bonds and gold and stocks and stuff. And so I thought, hey, what about having money in crypto instead of gold? Because it's sort of like digital gold in a, in a sense. But after seeing just the correlation between the market and crypto, it really wasn't a diversification. It was sort of a, an amplification of the stock market. And so when you're looking to diversify and you're like, hey, I want to hold some bonds and gold or cash so that when the market goes down, I have money that I can buy 
more stocks with, crypto is not a good candidate for that because it's going to dip even more than the market itself. It's too highly correlated to the stock market for it to be a good hedge. And so I'm trying to avoid turning this into like an investments episode. You know, I'm not a financial advisor. All I can do is just kind of tell you how we've decided to park our cash. And if folks are interested, I can do an episode in the future on how we've approached our FIRE investments. And it's kind of complicated, but happy to share. But for the purposes of this episode, I'm going to keep it specifically around just banks and stable coins and also I-bonds. And so finally, I thought I'd just sort of end it with like a couple of scenarios. The two scenarios I had in mind were if you have $10,000 and if you have $100,000, like where would you put it? And so the $10,000 question is pretty easy because you have so many different options available. You're not hitting the cap or the limits really at any of these places. And so that one really just comes down to what is your risk profile? And that's something I think we should all ask ourselves. How much risk are you comfortable with? What are you using that money for? If you lost the money, what would happen? And how soon do you need access to that money? And so depending on the answers to those questions, that sort of determines where you put that $10,000. But literally all of these options could work. And so I think that's kind of a nice problem to have. Then on the $100,000 end of the spectrum, which is the position we were in earlier this year when we had to move our money out of HM Bradley, I think the main point I would want to drive home is just diversification. Because it is more effort to diversify across all of these things, like getting yourself some I-bonds, opening accounts at like Current, and then at FTX and Voyager and Gemini, and then transferring money in. But diversification, as with the stock market, is how you protect yourself from things like Luna and UST plummeting. If you had all of your money in UST because it was offering 20%, you'd be really hurting right now and it would really suck. And so, yeah, I would start with I-bonds, honestly. I think it's such a good rate and the risk is so low that it beats out bank accounts. If you need some money on hand for emergencies, I would use current. And if you need money that you can use to get bank bonuses, I would probably use Ally because current, it's just an app. So it's harder to manage a whole bunch of transfers and transactions at the same time. Whereas Ally is like a web portal, has more features, all that good stuff, but you are earning a lower rate. So I wouldn't keep more money in there than I needed to qualify for bank bonuses. And then since we've maxed out I-bonds, I would divide the rest between FTX, Voyager, and Gemini and across holding fiat and USD coin and Gemini USD. So that way you're diversified across all of those. And so now you essentially have a bucket of cash that's earning pretty good interest and you're not locked into one single thing. So if one catastrophic event did happen, let's say FDX went bankrupt, at most you're losing 10,000, maybe 20,000 if you're in two player mode. And while that would really suck, it wouldn't be the end of the world. But if even that sounds too risky. Like for me personally, I kind of just assign things a percentage chance of happening. So for me, the chance of FTX collapsing in the next few years is maybe 1% or less would be my mental calculus for this. But if you feel like that's higher or if you're not comfortable with that kind of a risk, there is still HM Bradley, but you do have to jump through all of the HM Bradley hoops to get 3% interest, which can be a little hard to swallow when inflation is almost double digits. And there's other places that are offering better interest that can help match inflation. 
But as with all things money related, it's always a sliding scale of least risk gives you the least reward. Most risk gives you the most reward. And so kind of just understanding where you fall on that spectrum is super important when it comes to figuring out how then you diversify your cash. But yeah, that's it for this episode. I hope it was at least a little bit helpful. And um, yeah, as always, you can reach me on Reddit or Telegram or email or on my website at thedailychurnpodcast.com. There's also referral links on the site if you want to support the site. Otherwise, I'll be back in a couple weeks with the May recap. And that one might be a few days late because I'm going to be on vacation for the next couple weeks. But it's been a pretty good month so far. So I'm excited to share my churns. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. See ya.